Welcome to the Magnify podcast. Magnify is a platform at the intersection of faith, feminism, and fashion. During these episodes, we have conversations with dynamic individuals that we hope will leave you intrigued, inspired, and informed. Work-related stress is something we're all familiar with, as with any career comes the pressure to perform well. While these pressures can be good for us, there are times when it can have negative effects on our mental health. So, how do we recognise when these pressures cross a healthy boundary and what measures can we put in place to prevent it from becoming overwhelming? In this episode, we had the privilege of speaking to Carlos Eduardo Espinal, the managing partner of Seedcamp, a venture capitalist firm which invests in pre-seed and seed stage companies. Over his years of experience, he's led investment into over 200 companies. In this episode, Carlos spoke to us about how he's come to understand the importance of pressure for growth, what he believes the key traits of an entrepreneur are, and how having a set of values is essential for any business to attain success. Let's listen in. Thank you so much. It's always great to chat to you. So really looking forward to our conversation today. So I always love to get started to find out the type of person you are and the type of conversations you like to have. If you could have dinner um, or a dinner party with four guests from any era, who would they be and why? Cool. Well, uh, thanks, Ruth, for having me on on your podcast. And, you know, I love this question because it got me thinking about the nature of a dinner party, which are, you know, they have to be fun, right? So they can't just be like all serious and stuff and and just, you know, talking about big problems. So I, I thought you know, how do we, how do we bring a blend between like stimulation of the brain, but also good laughs and, and good times. So everybody has a fun time. So my first guest would be Marie Curie. You know, it's like the, you know, she won two Nobel prizes, probably the only one that's won two Nobel prizes in, in both, you know, in physics and chemistry and, and like looking at what I do for a job, which is basically looking for new things. It'd be such an amazing person to just ask, like, what do you think is going to happen with, you know, quantum computing? What's going to happen with health? And just like, you know, it's such an interesting brain to like, to sort of have questions for, you know, she's got to be super switched on. Um, another thing that I love um, is understanding, you know, how, to, how people deal with conflict and how to, how to resolve conflict. And this is probably more like what you would expect, you know, Gandhi. Um, I think we're living in such a, such a, complicated time that I would love to hear how Gandhi would would manage some of the relationships and tensions and and challenges that our world has today and you know I think you'd be actually probably also fun to, to chat about just life in general and then lastly um, I'm a big fan of anybody who pushes the boundaries and I think for me Ernest Shackleton epitomizes that you know he was an Antarctic explorer set to go down and, and cross uh, Antarctica, but failed and managed to salvage his entire crew amongst years of, of, of being basically isolated without contact. And so it's amazing just to see and hear his story. I mean, I read, I read the book and, and, you know, the biography and everything, but it's just like that kind of perseverance is the kind of perseverance that you, you need um, to be a founder. And so it's just kind of like an interesting mix of people. Um, yeah. I love that. Um, and so what's a surprising or unusual fact about you? So I um, wanted to become a doctor when I was coming out of 
uh, high school. And I remember my parents very much saying, well, if you want to go to, to, to become a doctor, you need to do an internship in, in Mexico. And the reason why was because um, I was studying in the States, hence my American accent, but my family li was living in Mexico. I'm originally from Honduras. But what was really interesting was that the medical training in Mexico is more direct, meaning you go straight into medicine rather than going through some sort of pre-med. So for my parents, they wanted me to like, okay, don't screw around. If you want to do this, do this. Don't like waste another four years just, you know, doing some general stuff. And so they were like, if you really want to do this, now's the time to decide. We're going to get you an internship. And they got me an internship with like a local um, remote town's emergency uh, room center. I learned a lot, of course, but it was interesting. I, I did come to the conclusion that medicine wasn't for me. And, it, and I remember a couple of stories that that stick in my mind of why I chose not to go down that path and instead go down to technology. And I think when you're dealing with tech and, and tech, you know, products and, and solutions, you're dealing with things you can, um, that, there, that there's no emotions to them in some ways, but it's wow. like when you're trying to fix them, it's not that they don't have emotions. It's more of like, like there's no pain. And whereas with medicine, and I have a lot of respect for doctors, you're dealing with somebody who's going through a lot of pain. That's why I say I really admire doctors who, who deal with that kind of, ER type experience. And so, you know, I probably could have been okay. Um, but I, I don't know, something, something triggered something within me at the time and I decided not to pursue it. Wow. Um, and then finally, how do you switch off and relax? So it's a funny one because some people are really good at relaxing just flat out. They say, I'm going to relax and off I go, right? Whether it's to go to bed or whether it's to go take a holiday, I really struggle with it. And I, I don't know if other people feel this way when they're listening to <laughs> I really struggle with turning off. And the only way that I figured out to turn off is either one, I am um, effectively disengaging uh, by reading, like through audiobooks primarily, whereby I'm still engaged and just not engaged in the way that I normally am. Um, or the other way is doing something that is likely to kill me. Um, so for example, like bouldering or scuba diving, when I was younger, I would do martial arts or anything where your brain doesn't have a second to like, think about how was your day? What were you doing? You're just kind of like, something's coming at you. Amazing. Um, and so I always like to start off, um, I know you were born in Honduras, but grew up in Mexico. Um, so what was your childhood like and what were some of the values that shaped who you are today? Yeah, so I, it's a little, probably a little bit more complicated than, than, than that. I, I grew up all over the world. My dad had a, a job that uh, focused on helping companies restructure. And so uh, while I was born in Honduras, I think by the time, by the time that I um, was kind of a teenager, I had already moved about five times. So the, the thing is, a lot of that has shaped some of the, um, the values that I had because I wasn't close to my larger family. It was just the nuclear family. We moved a lot. So I think the first value that taught me was around adaptability and resilience and versatility, sort of uh, culturally speaking, like you, your culture wasn't the only one that was, that mattered rather there's many cultures globally and they're all equally important and they all bring value in different ways, but also that you need to be independently resilient because you, you, you're dealing with constant change and you need to be adaptable to that change. So that was one thing that was interesting. And looking back, I, I think, you know, I can attribute to, the, to that part of my life. Then the other two things, which were really things that my dad drove into both my sister and I, um, was 
always be learning. And I remember summer, summertime was other kids got off and we got sent to summer school, you know, internships while other people were, were kind of enjoying their summers in different ways. So it's just, I think those values stuck with me. I mean, I know that they're not specifically values as we know them as such, but, but those are like the three that kind of, I think, underpinned a lot of my uh, uh, youth. That's really interesting, yeah, because um, my family, we moved around a lot till I was nine. I can definitely relate to that idea of learning about other people's cultures and knowing that yours is not the only one. And I think that that's just an amazing um, experience to go through as a child, because in adult life, you then just learn to respect and actually... Um, appreciate where other people have come from. Um, so obviously you said that you initially studied medicine, um, but how did you then become an investor and what drew you to this industry? So what I had not yet done was committing to post high school to going to college to study medicine. So in college instead, after I decided I was not going to become a doctor, I ended up studying a combination of, of two things. I I studied, uh, first two years, I studied engineering, engineering studies, which was like a combination of um, MECI classes and, and CIVI classes. And then I studied the last two years, a combination of business studies. The And, you know, when I came out of that, my it was right around the time that um, the Mosaic browser was coming online. I'm, I'm dating myself here a little bit, but uh, when I first started college, you know, the Mosaic browser was brand new. And by the time I graduated, you know, it was like, the nearing the the top of the bubble of 99 so clearly a lot of people in my school were really interested in joining startups and i um luckily ended up working for a organization that is super impactful in terms of the history of the internet my first job really was supporting the team of of, of GT internet working around uh, consultations of network security. So my first job in effect was in tech, but not necessarily um, creating new companies, but rather auditing companies for their security stance. And then I, I moved from there to um, the part of the, part of the team there was working on a contract with uh, what was then uh, a combination of the New York Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange Technology Groups called SIAC. And SIAC's still around, but but it was um, the, the nature of these technology groups was slightly different in the sense that there was two separate markets. And a group of the GT networking team that I was working with uh, was had a contract there. And I joined them after having worked in GT Network for a couple of years and was part of the team uh, led by a, a colleague uh, called Rob LeBeau, who was in charge of the Wi-Fi deployment for the trading floor. So it was really cool. I got a chance to build out the Wi-Fi architecture for the trading platforms of the New York Stock Exchange and the devices that traders used on the trading floor to make trades and, and designing those and, and effectively being part of the team that, that helped think through some of the problems there and, and roll it out. So that was about four and some years between when I graduated and by the time that I decided to to do my MBA. Wow. Um, so what have been some of the highlights of your journey so far and also the things you enjoy about what you get to do um, and some of the challenges? Um, during that time as an engineer, I met a guy who's a, a longtime friend who's based here in London now, but at the time was in Boston. And he started telling me about this idea of venture capital. And one of the things that was really interesting was that at the New York Stock Exchange, um, 
the, the group, the SIA group, would evaluate new technologies to deploy on the trading floors. And so in effect, there was like an in-house VC for the, the, the exchanges, but there was no money. It was rather contracts that were granted. And I really like that idea. I like the idea of looking at technologies and thinking, okay, well, what could this be like? And I remember engaging with some startups that you know have now become quite big. Wow. And that they were, we were making decisions about being their first customer, if you will. And, and, and a flagship customer at that. And I remember that, that part of the whole exploration of technologies and asking questions about how the technology be rolled out. I just remember I really liked that. And when a friend of mine who's a VC told me about what venture capital was, and I just saw it as an extension of that, except you now had money to give as opposed to contracts to give. So I did my MBA at Babson. And when I graduated, I wanted to go into venture capital. And I, I moved to London because my sister was here. And I met... Um, a couple of people, one of which was Sit Tartelli, who's now at Connect Ventures, who uh, introduced me to the team at Dowdy Hansen. And then I joined the Dowdy Hansen team, which focused on on a lot of deep tech type businesses. And, and they wanted me to help them with evaluating some of that stuff. So that's how I ended up being com- becoming a VC. And then to answer your question, the, the key things that were my highlights and lowlights since then, which is now almost like 12 years, is that the highlights is like fundamentally you're part of someone's journey as they succeed. Like seeing markets develop that weren't there before is so cool. You know, it's like seeing fintech evolve from nothing to something. You know, I remember being part of the investment review process for TransferWise when we were looking to invest in it. And I remember some of the investors around the table being like, oh, this will never work or, you know, Western Union's going to eat their lunch. And, <laughs> and now like it's a billion dollar business, right? And you know, being part of the founder journey during these, you know, in these companies and looking at, you know, the impact that they have not only to, to uh, the employees and the shareholders, but also to the customers, you know, they're, they're such a huge driver. It's super interesting to see these things emerge and, and being at the tip of the spear of that and being part of those founder journeys um, and seeing them become successful, but also seeing them evolve as, as leaders and, and that's probably the highlight for me. And then the, the lowlights for me are you can't have a journey like that and not have arguments, right? And not have relationships that fall apart or that are, are taxed or put into difficult situations. And therefore, there are a lot of mistakes you can make. There's mistakes in hiring, mistakes in firing, mistakes in, in collaborating with your colleagues, mistakes in how to engage with partners and you know, how to deal with investors. And each one of those things, I've made two or three, four or five mistakes. And some of them I've lost nights, countless nights of sleep on and over. And, and I've been super thankful to my team members and in particular, my, my uh, colleague, Reshma, who's um, co-founder of, of SeedCamp. And she really kind of has been a, a huge pillar in, in my life. And it's funny because, you know, I think I see her more often than her husband sees her. <laughs> probably the same goes for her, you know, but it's, it's critical, so critical to have the right team around you to be able to deal with some of these lowlights because otherwise it's damn tough. Wow. Um, you made me think of a question then. How much is intuition and instinct a part of your role? Because I guess with TransferWise, you knew that that would be successful, but how, I guess, yeah, how have you developed that instinct to know that you're on to a winner? So intuition and instinct are, are words that mask some of the experience that got you that. And I think there's a really good book called Blink that 
tries to unpack that. You know, there's a good example of like a pro tennis player doesn't look at the ball once it's been hit. It looks at the intentions of the other player in about to hit the ball and where it might go. And so I would say intuition and instinct are effectively the words that represent that kind of mature version of Blink, which is you have gone to that intuition and instinct through experience. And for us, one of the things that I love about working super early stage is that I get to see so many teams that I start getting a sense for when a team has the right attributes to be able to succeed. And so the intuition instinct is really just how do you quickly map the attributes of somebody who's likely to succeed and therefore make a decision on it. Um, so in an age where it's trendy to be an entrepreneur, like um, I know even when I look on Instagram, almost everyone's profile, it seems, is entrepreneur or I'm running this. Over your journey, what have you observed to be the key traits of successful entrepreneurs? So, so entrepreneurs and founders, which I'll, I'll use the term interchangeably because it's basically the same thing, um, are generally quite uh, resilient and gritty people. Um, you know, I think every single founder that I've met, even if they're thinking about starting a company and have just embarked on it, uh, are people who generally have a view that, that what they bring to the table is worth pushing through. It's not easy. And, you know, once you commit to exploring something, uh, as a founder, you generally are, I'm fully aware that it's not going to be a straightforward thing. You hope that it's going to be, you know, easier rather than harder, but you also brace for impact. And the the number one attribute, which is hard to rank, it's not like you can put people into like ranks, but it's hard to rank how gritty somebody is or how resilient somebody is. But generally speaking, the it, I think it's very easy to say that most of the founders that I know that are successful have had high levels of resilience and grit. The other thing that is a high correlation with with success is is having founder market fit which is where you have somebody who understands the pain point of their market they're addressing you know the founder fits the market if you will and one of the key things that sometimes we've seen people try to do is extrapolate what the pain is about something they don't understand And and it's not that they can't succeed with that it's just that it's harder to because you don't fully understand the problem so founder market fits the second trait that I see. And then the third one is, and probably the most important one, frankly, is being able to attract people and retain them. Like at the end of the day, a company isn't one person. At, 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 at the most successful, it's not going to be just one person. I mean, sure, there's many companies out there that are just one person, but you know, we're, we're talking, that's a sole proprietorship. So for the, for the purposes of like the semantics, a company I'm going to define as somebody a company that is more than one person. So you're going to have to at least find another person and make them agree to work with you and hopefully extend that not only to new money coming in through shareholders and investors, but also new employees. And founders that are really good are ones that can attract people and retain them. But it doesn't necessarily mean doesn't necessarily mean they're nice. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, if you look at Elon Musk, if you look at Steve Jobs, if you look at <laughs> some of the people that we know, it, it it has to be somebody who imbues meaning into the people that they attract. You know, I think people were drawn to work at Apple, but they didn't necessarily expect it to be easy. Just like people are drawn to difficult things because they bring meaning um, and meaning can sometimes trump difficulty. 
But I think if you don't have meaning or if you don't have a pleasant work environment, like you don't have something to attract people, then, then yes, you will likely struggle in building a, a good team. Wow. Um, and that kind of leads on to my next question around purpose and entrepreneurship. Um, so for you, what's the relationship between purpose and entrepreneurship and how can leaders be more intentional, both in the formation and growth of their business? Because I think the example you've given um, really resonates in terms of you might see an industry and think, wow, I could make a lot of money there, but actually not be a right fit or understand the pain pinpoint. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So purpose isn't um, exclusive to being within the industry that you came from. So where founder market fit can be overturned, if you will, is when somebody has massive purpose behind why they're doing something. Mm -hmm. So for example, we invest in a company um, called Adia and, and they're working on helping parents that are going through reproductive challenges they went through their own fertility struggle. And so the purpose there is very much a personal purpose. And so I think that the balance is between having purpose that drives you versus having an understanding of what, of what you're working on. But both things are equally important to have. And if you can have both, that's amazing. If you can, if I had to pick between one, I would pick a purpose, a very strong purpose as to why you're working on something. And, and that can sometimes overcome that lack of founder market fit when it's relevant. Um, so moving on to innovation, um, we spoke a little bit before we started recording, but how do you think the pandemic will affect the world of business and investing? So two, two separate points. Um, I think you mentioned innovation yeah. and, and then the, the pandemic. So let me just tackle one first and then we'll talk about the pandemic. So innovation is a funny word. I have such mixed feelings about that word. And so much so that I found it really interesting when I saw David Rowan, uh, ex-Wired uh, Magazine editor. And in the book, he basically goes into describing how the word is so butchered and so incorrectly used. And in many ways, how it can sometimes it be defaced by simple actions like having an innovation team within a large company, but the CEO of the company doesn't really buy into the vision of what's coming out the other end. So it's really innovation is, is a funny word because I know what you mean when you ask me the question, but it's just something that I think people need to be mindful of is that um, you need to be careful not to sort of conflate uh, innovation with disruption or with um, new ideas. You know, like there's a lot of things there that kind of get merged into one the pandemic has forced the hand of a lot of people, right? It's forced um, some industries to innovate. You know, we were we were chatting before we started recording about how it's forced Magnify to evolve. Um, it's forced, for example, Seed Camp to evolve as well. Like, you know, my entire team right now is um, on uh, remote work mode with you know Zoom calls and and how do we run that? And how do we keep people engaged and feeling like they're still part of a team? And so there's a lot of innovation that has happened by force uh, around how to work together, how to stay in touch, how to um, continue to have the the meetings that you were having before and deliver what you needed to deliver. But putting that aside, it's the pandemic and and COVID has affected uh, companies by highlighting certain things and reducing other things. For example, clearly travel has been 
largely impacted and industries that are similar to it have been you know reduced in in their ability to attract customers like by law or by circumstance like obviously hospitality is another big one but on the flip side if you look at what that's forced some of these companies to do is is change the narrative around what is an experience for example you might have seen airbnb launched online experiences where you can oh, yeah. book like an interview or you can book a an experience with a, a, a coffee specialist in colombia you know and some of the stuff would have not existed now i don't know how well it's doing but what's interesting is it's just forced people to think differently about how they're delivering value to their customers and the areas of investment that are flourishing, you know, I'm looking at a huge amount of investment going into communications tools, remote work tools, education tools, especially for stay-at-home parents, um, entertainment, anything having to do with keeping people busy, especially when you're locked in home all day. And then, of course, health, primarily health, whether it be telemedicine or whether it be proactive health or whether it be diagnostic health or anything having to do with COVID. Those are areas that are impacting um, investment and, and areas of interest. Brilliant. Um, so what opportunities then? You've spoken about those kind of four to five industries, but obviously there's where we are at the moment and where we'll be in kind of 12 to 18 months. So what do you think are um, opportunities for entrepreneurs during yeah this kind of next season? So there's a, there's a challenge there, which is that I think it's this is an interesting time where people will have access to people being at home online more than they would normally. But on the flip side, founders will struggle to get meetings with, let's say, enterprise sales in a way that was might have been easier a year ago. So I think the opportunities are, you know, I mentioned some of the sectors, but I think it's also opportunities around who's available to, to do customer development on. And, you know, the consumer that is at home is going to have a different time profile than let's say somebody who's working in an organization that's being restructured and the dust hasn't fully settled on how all companies will be impacted. So I expect that you know, founders exploring different segments are probably worth exploring the intersection of not only the industries that are going to be taking off or already taking off, like the ones I mentioned before, entertainment, remote work, communications, ed tech, health, but also what the what the availability of that end customer is to have those conversations about their interests in purchasing because some people and some enterprises will be on pause, whereas other people will be definitely spending because it's critical for them to help reduce costs internally or whether it's helpful for them to be more efficient or whether it's helpful for them to be able to engage with their employee base more. So it's the, it's the intersection of those two Venn diagrams that I would encourage people to explore. Um, but a lot of companies often only innovate when they're on a downward trajectory, which can often be too late. So what's the importance of innovation as a company value and what does that look like in practice? I don't know if you can have innovation as a company value. Like I, I have suspicions as to whether you could have innovation as a company value. I think there's other values that enable innovation to happen. And I think there's probably a debate to be had there. I think you can't force innovation but you can create an environment where mistakes are allowed, where people are encouraged to speak up, where exploration is encouraged. And as an outcome of having those values, you therefore have innovation. Oh. So I want to talk about pressure um, because I definitely feel pressure um, 
running magnify but I, w- I would never trade that for anything and I think the pressure has actually helped me in a lot of ways um, but there's a lot of pressure mentally on entrepreneurs not just to get their business to succeed but to engage with stakeholders to um, make good on an investment to be accountable to develop a team what advice would you give to entrepreneurs on dealing with the mental pressure that comes from running a business I think mental health is probably one of the emerging crises of our generation. And pressure is clearly a subset of that. In effect, you could say pressure both erodes mental health, but also strengthens mental health. Because in effect, as similar to to going to the gym, uh, working out can help strengthen you further, but at the same time weakens you. And so there's this weird dynamic with this word how does how does pressure affect you? And the reason why I'm, I'm saying this is because some of the the biggest growth spurts that I've had as an individual in the last decade that I can remember have come from moments of intense pressure that I actually hated when I was going through. And I remember one or two in particular where you know I was getting it was a massive emotional. Uh, drain uh, large amounts of yelling involved, and it was a, this is a work situation. And frankly, the amount of pressure that I felt, and when I ended up resolving it, it felt so much better, but also I learned so much from it that it made me have a different perspective on pressure because that pressure, I realize, can be both a blessing and a curse. And so it doesn't undermine the need for mental health. It doesn't, it doesn't change the, that, that spectrum that I outlined in the beginning, which is there's a whole spectrum of that to another. But my my relationship with that word pressure is is complicated because it's not the way you ask the question makes it sound like, you know, it's necessarily a negative thing, but it, it can actually be a positive thing too. It's just how do you manage that tension between letting it drag you all the way down versus having the resilience to deal with it, but then come out the other end stronger and better for it. So that's maybe that's a kind of roundabout way of first laying the foundation to answer your question. So then that changes the narrative as a founder, like this pressure that I'm going through, it will pass and might make me stronger. And provided that I don't let it consume me to the point where it would be destructive, I will be better off for it. So I think part one is, is provided that you're not somebody who's vulnerable and you already know your limits it's just changing that narrative to help you think through this this moment of pressure as a, an evolution rather than as a um, as a ding, you know, where you're looking for no pressure at all. Because I think it's not sustainable to have growth and have no pressure. Like understanding your limits, rephrasing what the word pressure means to you, and understanding that you can't have growth without pressure. So it's about understanding what is the tolerance level for pressure so that you can grow at the end of overcoming it. And your barometer for what is pressure you can handle will change with with years and it will get better. Wow, I love that description Um, because it makes me think of how I'm still have a lot of work to do on the pressure side but in terms of failure over the last few years I've definitely reframed that in my mind to see that as a positive thing obviously there's a limit to how much you want things to not work um, but yeah that's a really helpful description so I wanted to ask about whether people can be successful and live life in balance or is that just a price to pay and I guess people that I really admire are you know Steve Jobs, Michael Jordan, 
Serena Williams. And when I actually look at their lives, it's clear that there has been a great price to pay and the ideal of balance and, you know, having equal time to relax is a myth. So do you think particularly a lot of the businesses that you invest as people um, in the context of pressure, do you think that you can be successful and live life in balance? When you look at the word balance, it implies that there is a visual tool like a weight balance whereby one side is equal to the other. Whereas in, re- in reality, it's a, it's a relationship between one side and the other and what you prioritize one side versus the other. So what means work-life balance for one person is not the same as it is for another person. It completely varies depending on what you prioritize. And so therefore it becomes very hard to even answer your question without understanding what that means. For example, for one person, work-life balance might mean two days at home with their family and the rest of the days in the office versus for another person that might mean four days at home and the rest in the office. So it becomes very difficult to really have a sense for that if, if you don't have an equal marker. like you, you effectively invest in what you prioritize. And I think some people will look back on their lives and think, I misprioritized. And other people will look back on their lives and be like, I didn't misprioritize. I know that I had to make some sacrifices, but they were worth it in the end because this is what I prioritize. And I think where we run the risk of feeling regret is when our priorities change later in life. And then we look back at our priorities when we were younger and think, damn, I prioritized the wrong thing. But at the same time, keep in mind that you, you every day have the chance to wake up and say, what is my number one priority? And am I doing this because this action that I'm taking today is driving towards that priority. Is this extra hour of work that I'm doing helping me have more freedom to spend time with my family in the future? Or do I need to not have this additional hour because it allows me to spend more time with my family now? And I think that's the trade-off every day. And every day it's a, it's, it's a commitment to the priorities and the priority mix that you have for that year, for that decade and, and you have to look, hopefully, in the future and look back and say, okay, I made the right call, but not necessarily beat yourself up if you feel like you would have done a different one when you look back. So finally, moving on to faith, um, how did you come to faith and what does faith mean to you in your everyday life? So first of all, I came to, to faith culturally. And I was born in Latin America where people are primarily Catholic um, and, you know, if you look at most of Latin America, that you know, most, of, most of the countries are Catholic. And, and then I became Protestant when I moved to the United States um, as part of my education there and, you know, being exposed socially. And, and I would say probably today I'm more of a mixture of theologies and life philosophies between the two. Frankly, it's kind of intermingled. Um, and then for me, you know, what does it mean? Um, you know, for me, faith is about believing in something bigger than yourself. It's about having, you know, the ability to, to have a North star, if you will. And, you know, it doesn't mean that having a faith, you won't get things wrong. You know, like you're very much capable of screwing up and saying the wrong things and, you know, taking the wrong actions. And I think that's a misconception that some people have, um, especially sort of in the broader uh, communities is like, you know, there's an expectation of, of perfection because you have some sort of view of, of what a North star could be. And so 
you know, knowing that it's more that this North star gives you a direction to know for you what is true and, and to which way to go and which way to build and which way to act, but n- not necessarily um, feeling like, you know, you're, you're a bad person because you, you didn't always live up to that. But by having North star, it also helps you not get lost, you know, because sometimes by not having that North star that faith brings, you can end up in a self-referencing outlook on life, you know, a relative outlook on life where you're like, Oh, every day you're comparing yourself to something else. And then that means that you're never making progress towards that one direction that faith and a North star can provide. Um, And then finally, how do your, I guess, personal values shape how you do business? So this is a very interesting question because uh, there has been, studies done around the nature of how value uh, in a company values in a company drive company value. Um, and there's a, a good book. If somebody, you know, on your, in your listeners want to read, it's called good to great by Jim Collins and did a research and Brilliant book. <laughs> yeah, he found that, you know, companies with uh, a humanistic soul um, did so much better than just companies that were okay. And if you look at companies that have values, like take Patagonia, for example, it's probably one of the poster childs of values. And, and the, the point of this article and the point of some of the research isn't which set of values. That's the really interesting thing. It doesn't matter which values. It just matters that you have values. And so therefore, what I've learned is that values are important, that companies that have values outperform those that don't. It doesn't matter what the values are. You just need to have them and that they're presented in a way that when you hire and when you, you help people, they understand what those values are. And, and you know, in our company, we have values and they're on our website and we share them with our, our team and we try to live up to them. And it just helps shape the culture of the company. And so you know, it's, it's great when you can see this quantified, but in effect, I think so much has been learned in the last decade around the impact of company culture. And, um, and that, I think, will be, continue to be uh, an area of exploration in terms of company research, but I think the evidence is clearly showing that values shape a business positively. Wow. Thank you so much, Carlos. I always learn just even for my own life and my own journey with Magnify so much. So I'm really thankful for your time. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from this, go ahead and share this with them. Also, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps us out. See you next time.